We're going old school this week on the Real Guy Podcast. Captain Norm and I visit Merritt Boat Company in Pompano, Florida to interview the world-famous Eddie Herbert. Eddie started in the 60s at Key Biscayne and has traveled the world with some of the most famous boats that have ever been built. Captain Norm and his father have had history with Eddie, fishing with him for years. So today, sit back and listen to the story from a true legend, Eddie Herbert. Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is the Real Guy Podcast. What years did you fish with Norm? Oh. We had the, the 54 Merit. Yeah, Mike Saragusa's boat. So that would have been before Hugo. So yeah. I'm thinking it was 88. 88 or 89, something 89 like that. 89 was Hugo. Yeah. yeah. I don't think you would have been there at 89 because the... Actually, it was that summer. Wait a minute. It was that summer. Then we lost... Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you. I'll tell you how I know it was '89. That was the year I turned 21, and I turned 21 while I was in the pit with uh, Kunta. It was Kunta and who else? Uh, Pete? Pete. Pete Sanchez. Yeah, okay. And uh, and that one day it was so miserable. Yeah. We got out. We fished all day long, raining, miserable, and like at 3:30 in the afternoon, it cleared up. Gorgeous. Yep. Between three and dark yep. or whatever we fished and we caught four yep and, and i've got that picture at home with you doing this stretched uh, out no kidding uh, oh wow i got that, it in my album you don't have that picture i i, I might have it somewhere. i've got to try to get it to you then because you can take a picture with your phone and then text it to him it's, yeah at least there you have go. it digitally yeah it's got yeah. it's got you stretched out stretched with out the with leather the, just like this yeah the fish up in the air yeah he was standing on his tail yeah, yeah i remember that picture yeah kunta thought it was a marlin magazine cover <laughs> yeah it, it might, yeah it should have been it should have been it was a great shot but and then of course you know fishing your dad fished with me in cozumel and in st thomas and and, then, and in palm beach yeah and then yeah. he also of course i ran it in every tournament he would be there yep oh you know? From what he had to Hatteras to the uh, both Hatteras to Adoc with him, and then uh, and then he had the the, the brown one, the fifty. Yeah, yeah. Well, he 50 had a thirty-two, whatever it was. He and had a then, thirty-seven, and then he had a fifty, and it was actually that's how I, this now. Then Jeff, he bought this, the scoreboard, right? And this now this goes back a long ways. It was probably nineteen seventy-seven or seventy-eight. And it's, I think we were out on D Dock at Bahiamar. And on one side of us was the hooker with Skip and Kunta. And on the other side of us was you and maybe Alan on, yep, and on, uh, on the, uh, El Lobo. It was uh, 70, yeah. Little 36 Hatteras. Yeah, yeah. That was it, yeah. And you were the first guy, and this was the first time I'd been introduced to Fort Lauderdale and fishing offshore and that kind of thing. And the very first billfish I ever saw was Eddie had caught a blue marlin, and we watched him put it in the boat. And I saw that fish on the dock. And that, that was, was the first skip. That was the uh, skip, you and skip. But you did it on that thirty uh, on that thirty six half. Yep, you got a picture of it standing there, holding it all up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was the first blue marlin I ever saw get caught. Was right here in Fort Lauderdale. And wow. your yeah, your dad would always come around the dock, and that's when he still lived in Maryland. Mm-hmm. He just come down, go fishing, and go home. So Eddie, tell us how you ended up in Fort Lauderdale. I left Keys Cape. Oh, I would hope was to stay on the key, but to try to get a charter boat slip there was. 
No way. It just wasn't going to happen. Those slips were passed down forever and ever. But uh, I moved up there in 70, I believe it was like 77. So way back then, what were the premier sport fishing boats back then? Bertram or Hatteras. Well, in the way of production boats. Bertrand Harrison, probably Rivalvich. Merritt was in the in the mix too, but Rivalvich was building just a shade bit bigger boats that everybody wanted. Merritt was still in the forty three and the thirty seven, which no. I had. We had a forty three. My, my for father quite a thought, while. Yeah, my father thought the thirty seven. Yeah, I think he made even two to fish with me over there mm-hmm. in, in the forty three. And uh, that was the first Merritt. I've, I've I've run a thirty seven too, but it's Roy owned one. But the uh, uh, those were the premier, right. and but the in the way of boats was Birchman Hatteras. Oh my God! I remember when the fifty-five Hatteras first came out, and that was like the queen uh, of the fleet. Right. If yeah. you had the fifty-three, a lot of people had them. But when the 53. fifty-five came out, Bertram came out with the fifty-four. You remember? Right. Uh, sure. Was his Burgess. That was my had Burgess the screaming eagle, yeah, screaming eagle, Eric with uh, Eric. The fifty-four to fifty-five. Yeah. Those were your when you went to the custom uh, the the uh, Bertram Hatteras shootout. That was the boat. Um, Eddie, tell us just a little bit about what it was like in those early days on a dock. Well, and coming was, up and how there was a ton of boats. Number one, there was twenty. If I remember, they had twenty-four slips. Wow! Yeah. And when I came down there and you know talked to them about the lady that ran the dock, I talked to her about Betty. moving in Betty, and yeah. then uh, we they had a slip available, and uh, pretty much in the peak, every one of them slips was taken. You're talking about a lot of competition, a lot of, and they had, it wasn't like down south. Well, Keepers Cane didn't have a lot of walk up business to begin with, but, you know, Castaways had a different reputation. But, you know, as you know, at Mahia Mar, they kept everything. She did run the dock. Oh, yeah. She kept it. Yeah. yeah. And you could only book behind your boat. The prices were set, you couldn't discount. You might have been able to charge more. You just couldn't charge any less than what the going rate was. Uh, she handled all the mounts. You got a whopping twenty percent. Yeah, and uh, that meant myself or whoever the deckhand was would get ten percent, and then she, and then Mahiamar got five, and then she got five. Wow, wow! And now, what 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 were the first boats that you were running? That there? one there, when we brought that Hatteras in there, and then we we exchanged it for that forty six Bertram, and we had that there for quite a while. Okay, and then when we bought that forty three Merritt, I just got talked into moving up to fish city and back okay. then that's what it was called yeah i don't yeah, know yeah. inlet marina now whatever they call it <laughs> right but we moved up there and we took the 43 up there we had a 43 merit up there that's right and we yeah. actually took that boat to texas and fished it and we chartered out of there for quite a while then finally he just it just wasn't we were doing so much traveling there was no point chartering anymore Right now, this was El Lobo at that. At the, the first one was El Lobo. That was that was El Lobo. Second one was Grand Slam, which was a forty-six Bertram, and the third okay. one was a bootlegger. Eddie's been able to keep some very good relationships through the sport fishing world, and has surrounded himself with top-notch guys like Skip Smith. Now, tell us just a little bit because you you and Skip kind of mirrored each other uh in in terms of coming up from a dock and uh, you and skip that's how i met skip right his dad of course owned the drift boat and he was working on a uh a yacht over there and uh he was running their little uh game boat i think it was like a 28 carry at the time Mm -hmm. 32 carry something like that and that's where we sort of met and i was really fortunate when he uh the one 
Bob that was fishing as my dad came, he was becoming an attorney. He was going to law school. So he was going to leave sooner or later. So he left, and then Skip came on board. And and and, and, and uh, now coming up from a dock is really where you cut your teeth on 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 uh and tell us a little bit more about how you matriculated up from there to you know traveling all over the bahamas and 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 everything else like that well at a dock because we did so well we got a really really good clientele mm-hmm. uh and of course having skip with me and uh the clientele just kept growing and growing and uh one of the charters we had, and I think this would have been like 1979, he uh, he had a 46-hatter. He was a Texan. And he uh, he uh, fish went out with us that day. We took some him and some friends out. And he says, well, my boat's coming over from Texas. I'm going to have it up there at whatever it was at the time, Cable Marine or Bradford's or whatever. And he says, I'm going to take it to Cosmel, and I need somebody. I'm thinking, whoa, I really, this is the opportunity yeah. because you'd heard the rumors of the striker fleets that would do those rendezvous down in Cosmel and see these fantastic numbers. And I said, man, this is a dream. And I was still in my really early 20s, so it was like, whoa, I want to take this opportunity. He says, well, we'll go to Cosmel, then we'll go to Texas and fish all the tournaments over there. I go, man, this is, this is something mm. I don't want to pass up. I went and talked to... And the owner of the Alobo, and he, he says, "Look, I do it. I did it for you because I had been working for him for so many years as a mechanic. And uh, when he had uh, all the Mercury dealerships, he said, you know what? It doesn't mean nothing to me. So just bring the boat back up here. And then uh, I took the job, and we went to Cozumel, came back, fished Cuba, oh, wow. which was really rare. They had that first Hemingway. I think there were 75 boats. My father was in on that. Bobby was. Yep. Yep. A lot of guys were there. And... Uh, then from there we went to Texas, and uh, that's when Kunta jumped out with me. And uh, now was did, this Siragusa? No, this was one guy before that. And okay. uh, the name of the boat was the Larissa. Just forty-six hatters, pretty plain. And uh, when we were up the, over there, we flew Skip in to fish all the tournaments. So it was me, Kunta, and, and Skip. Couldn't have been that's a better a combination. We fished Poco, deadly tournament. And, and the next year, uh, Kunta had hooked up with the guys from the Hooker. It brought well. I take it back. Now they didn't bring in Skip in on that one. They did bring Skip in, but they chartered a boat, and uh, they ended up. Um, I can't remember what they did. But the next year they had the hooker there, and they won it. Okay. Him, Kunta, and Peter Wright. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. we kept going back, and then the next year while I was there, I met Saragusa and uh, sort of put that deal together, and that went on for until nineteen ninety. Yeah, was, you were with him. A good long yeah, while. Yeah, almost now, 10 years. Now, yeah. I want to backtrack just a little bit on your tournament, uh, your your tournaments. Uh, now, if you were in the Triple Crown, if you were fishing the Sailfish tournaments, if you were doing that circuit in the 1980s, and you heard that uh, Eddie Herbert was running a boat in this tournament, you started quaking in your boots. Well, we would tell us know, about you, that. The Fort Lauderdale Billfish tournament, that was a big deal. You know, we all were there for that. And there weren't the tournaments there are now. And nowhere near the money. And nowhere really the competition. So what we would do is, uh, you know, back then, you, you Skip, and this is not, uh, Skip pretty much was the one that came up with the two-kite idea. Nobody was flying two kites. 
I mean, nobody was doing that. Skip sort of figured out the way to make the kite fly, and then it was caught on. John Dudas Sr. caught on right after, started doing it right after Skip did. And we started doing it. Of course, we only did four baits instead of now they're doing six. Right. Some guys may be doing more. And uh, uh, we started doing that, but fishing the Lauderdale Billfish Tournament, and you went out with the kite, and uh, uh, you fished four mullet in the kite. And I remember the first year we won it down there off uh, – John Tenner specials. Uh, down, uh, Yeah, down <laughs> – and then somebody had run. The guy had that hardware store in Lauderdale. He had a 26 strike, the fiberglass Mr. one. Mr. Withall? What is it? Was it Larry Withall? Larry's dad? That sounds for me. That's him. That's yeah, him. And they dead. ran to Bemini and caught a blue marlin. But we had enough sailfish. I forgot what we had. Alan was with me. Right. I forget what we had, but it, we, we, we did it on points. But, you know, that 23 Seacraft, the couple yeah. that owned the tackle store, they were they would win that thing very. Remember we had two no, Lauderdale no. tournaments a year. You had in April and October. Sure, yeah. We would. We were never there for the April one because we were in Cozumel or Texas or the Bahamas. But my I want to talk about those old tournaments in, in Fort Lauderdale because, like, right now, I mean, you've probably seen it, Eddie. It's kind of, we're losing the identity of downtown where it used to be a fishy place and the tournaments were grandiose and everybody from the world came here. And now, yeah, they come here, but they come here to see a Merritt or a Mega Yacht or to stay at the W Hotel. The, or to go to the Hard Rock Casino. Right. It's not, it's not the fishing destination. You'd <laughs> well, live through it. When charter it was boats a, dock is gone, basically. Just like uh, Castaways disappeared. Yeah, it's gone. Uh, Pier 5 disappeared years ago. Now, yeah. of course, there is a Pier 5, but it's not the old Pier 5. And BMR is gone. Yeah. And it's shrunk. It went from 24 to 15 to 12 to 10 to 8. And, you know, look at some of the guys that have been there for like Rick. They've been there forever. He just sold out and got out. You know, and he had two boats at one time, three. And uh, that uh, now there's what one charter dock down there by the uh, they're scattered Los throughout Sol, there, yeah. the little ones, yeah. but it's yeah. not the big charter dock that had been at Behemoth for years. I mean, there was like Jack Whittemore and the Stairs guys, all them guys, Pee Wee, uh, they were all there for years. And yep. that, that, uh, that there's more history coming out of that dock. Oh, I mean, there used to even be a Fort Lauderdale Blue Marlin tournament at one time. I guess that was in the 60s. But the docks, it's, it's what um, progress has done. Right. You know, It's more valuable as something else. It's but not it, valuable as a fishing right. community. It's better off as whatever, a condo. Now, was, was that your, your fondest era? Back then, in, in the 80s and early 90s. That charter boat dock was pretty cool, but when we really, st- you know, traveling. I mean, we'd sit there in the late 60s, 70s to go to a trip to the Bahamas. Oh, man. We'd plan for a week to go to Bemini. We'd plan for a month to go to Chubb. <laughs> now you go to Bemini on a 20-minute notice, you know, and Chubb. Oh, you know, yeah. Bahamas, we didn't have the range. You didn't have the boat. You didn't have it to do what we do today. Yeah. I mean to sit there and do a you know fifteen hundred mile trip on its own bottom. We don't. We didn't have that ability. You had to carry. We didn't have GPS. We didn't have fancy mm-hmm. radars and sonars and everything that we have today. Mm-hmm. So it's. I mean, it's so much more, te- uh, more t- uh, technical now than it was back then. You had to li- live on instincts. Right. Right. See, my my dad thought that that was the greatest era in fishing. Because as people learn to travel more and to, and to reach out, that everybody kind of needed everybody else 
in order to make it happen. So oh, yeah. it was a community. No, now, now if you don't have a sonar, don't fish. Now, in tournaments now, they have two divisions, sonar and no, no sonar. Really? I mean, we just, example, uh, <laughs> just a month ago in Mags Bay, there were three of us left up there. And we're talking a huge, massive area to cover. Right. And uh, we found, the, you can see the floppers and the jumpers and, you know, sort of what the ball, bait balls, but... There were three of us up there. Two of us had sonars. We each had 65 fish each, or in the 60s, 70s. <laughs> Actually, one boat may have a few more. And the one boat without a sonar had nine. All right. All right. So look at the difference. Yeah. So, you know, and, and the old depth finder just doesn't do the trick anymore. Mm. Yeah. Now who, That's who, amazing. Who introduced you to the, the offshore bill fishing? Oof. Goes really, really back. Believe it or not, it was Jim Lambert who... I worked for for a lot of years. His father, uh, Jim Senior, he's. Let me see if I get this right. His uh, brother-in-law, Harry Tellum, lived on Key Biscayne, had a thirty-five Bertram, and he took me for my first sailfish when I was about nine, nine or ten years old. I was always hanging around the dock behind his boat there, and I had a little John boat with a three horsepower or six horsepower Johnson on it. I got a Boston Whaler, and then I got a 23C crab, and it went on from there. But he uh, he says, come on, boy, let's go. Go ask your parents. Okay, you go fish. You took out. We caught a sailfish, and it was just never, that was it. never looked back. And then, of course, not knowing that Jim Lambert was his brother-in-law, and when I finally went to work for Jim in 95, you know, that's, that's just, well, actually, uh, Jim came down in St. Thomas and fished with me on the bootlegger in 83. Mm -hmm. And that's what I met him and realized it was Harry wow. Tellerman. I grew up with all world. the Tellerman boys. They're all, we all were all from the Keys, so growing up there. But Harry probably was the one that was most getting me into offshore fishing. Nice. But catching me that fish cost me a lot of money. <laughs> I started spending money like it was water to uh, go you, offshore fishing. You, you know, and that's the funny thing about it, too, is this, you can almost always point to one guy and one fish that started it all f for you. And the, the funny part about it is, Eddie, you and that blue marlin in 1978 was what started it for me. Okay, seeing that. And, you know, I've, I've actually taken it now. Jeff and I are kind of trying to bring back the blue marlin fishing thing right here in Fort Lauderdale. And we've been uh, we've been trying to do it here. We tried it a few times yeah. with Jim when we got bored. He got bored and, you know, we, there was nothing else going on. We would go out there to where the swordfish grounds are right. and put your lures out. We actually tried it one time at the Pompano Rodeo. Because remember that there was a time in the yeah. rodeo people were all running to the Bahamas catching blue marlin. And then it got all big out of control and everybody got Coop up in arms. Yep. Yeah, he was and one. I think he won it one time. He did win it, yeah. and uh, of course that caused a big turmoil. And mm. uh, <laughs> so then they said, "Well, now you got to stay within the you know." So yeah, we actually went out and tried it, and uh, uh, by God, I did do think we had a bite. And we went out with Jim for a couple of days in a row, and I think we had a bite too. Yeah, yeah. You know? well, one of the things that uh, that uh, we've been talking with the audience about since we started the podcast about five years ago is how guys like yourself and my dad. Um, you know, Blue Marlin or Billfish was priority. Everything else was kind of like bycatch in the amount of fish that you could catch off of Fort Lauderdale. So uh, I got a 31 birch from about 12, 14 years ago. And first thing I wanted to do was catch a Blue Marlin off the coast of Fort Lauderdale. And we were able to make it happen. Then Norm and I start telling old stories about Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. 
Norm gets. Hair I got up. the bug. He got the hair up his ass. He goes out there. He's <laughs> raising fish. Yeah, we caught one last year. Another friend of ours, yeah. because of the podcast, was into it. He went out there. He was catching fish, and it's just hard to watch the masses go after blackfin tunas and small dolphin when you know well, that those fish are sitting there years ago too and i know now for fishing on miami or even when i go fishing with my own boat at stewart i got the 30 contender but i i will not go on a weekday a weekend mm-hmm. i always try to go on a week yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. the boat ramp is like nothing you've ever <laughs> seen so back up pressure i mean fishing miami's a kid you'd be out there with a kite up there might be half a dozen boats all on a weekend with a kite up and that's it now there's hundreds oh yeah and you're sort of thinking you're how's it poor selfish even have a chance to get through all these live baits <laughs> but it, it it's they're out there there was a growing up there was a guy who worked for a radio station that had like a little 172 Cessna it was called the Flying Fisherman and I believe I remember right yeah. the guy was Australian it was like WQAM or WFUN one of these yeah, really yeah, yeah. really old AM radio stations and he was called the Flying Fisherman and he would go up every Saturday, and I believe it was Sunday morning too. And we're talking in the early seventies, and he would fly around everywhere, and he'd fly over you, and you could hold up your fish, whatever. And he'd give a report. He said, "Oh, there's a weed line five miles off Fowey Light, and we see everyone catching dolphin, and we see this and that." And, and very few people even were kite fishing back then. I mean, more people were just trolling. Well, and and my father told me a story. And I don't know if this is true or not, but he he told me that you were one of the first guys to bring kite fishing to Palm Beach. Well, we went up to fish that tournament, uh, one of the ones, IBL or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Very few boats flew the kite, if not anything. And, I mean, it worked so well in Miami. Well, when we moved to the charter dock in, in Hillsborough. Now, wait a minute. We only moved 11 miles up the beach. So. <laughs> Yeah. Oh no no we live ballyhoos. Uh, I just couldn't get into the live ballyhoos. Not that they don't work. I just couldn't. I was so in, so focused on the kite and then brought up kite fishing. We flew the kite and we did very well. Uh, I understand you you guys upset a lot of them them old old boys well, up there that it, were it, still it were dragging bullets around. But the but the uh, <laughs> yeah ballyhoos. But yeah. Palm Beach they pulled the goggle eyes out of the riggers. Right. Well the presentation's right. not there. Yeah. So it's so much a better presentation of the kite. And back then, if you had goggle eyes, now if you fish a tournament, you've got to have pilchers. You've got to have sardines. You've got to have threadfish. You've got to have goggle wells. eyes. You've got to have tinkerback. You've got to have it all. <laughs> if you go out and just goggle eyes, you're, it's like you're going out in the woods and you're hunting everything but with only a twenty two. You know, you're not going to shoot a moose with a twenty two. But you've got to have everything. And years ago, I mean, we were happy with mullet or pinfish. Now that's unheard of. You wouldn't hear anybody be. Uh, no. Everybody's got to have goggle eyes, thread fins. You know that going for bait guys. Oh, yeah. If they don't have blue runners, no, I don't want them. <laughs> yeah, the pinfish. The pinfish days. The lowly pinfish. Remember that? Uh, was it Harbor Beach Bait? Harbor Tackle down there? On Harbor bait Beach tackle. Bait Tackle. And then and uh, Harbor Bait Tackle oh, was yeah. over there. What was that guy's name? Beach Bain Tackle, and then there was, was Harbor Bain Tackle. Right. right. Yeah. And, and and they had the live well. The different they, wells. And full of pinfish. And yep. I tell Whoa. people those stories that people would put the pinfish on the kites. And they, 
Eddie, they don't believe me for a second. I'm like, I swear to God, people use pinfish on the We yes. used them all oh, the yeah. time. Sure. Now, when Skip came to work with me, we, he goes, hey, we got to have a big well. And his friend, best friend, Craig, uh, had working on the happy day. He had, they, put, they had one made. I think it was like 40 inch. Well, we can't get no 40 inch in that little ladder, so we put a 36. And fishing live bonitas. Were yeah, incredible. We did that. And the guys that would fish them would go out with bonita lines. You catch them and put them out, mm-hmm. and you have to leave the rest of them just hanging on the. This is uh, before tuna tubes the came out. Yeah. You know, so we would throw them flippers in the well. We'd go out, the bonitas in the well. We'd go out and fish a half a day. Come in the well. Bonitas were still doing that oh, yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then if sailfish was no good, we'd go down to that Hollywood sewer or up there off the. Birch State Park in there shallow and put them bonitas out, put a second, you know, get rid of the motto, go to wire, and I mean, we'd be catching 30, 40, 50 pound barracudas all day long, and people <laughs> would love it. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and it's shark fishing, of course, with a live bonita, and uh, uh, I mean, with Skip, you could almost, it was just like going out, he was always trying something different. If something wasn't working, he would go into trying something different. So you know, one of the one of the things that always struck me about you is is the level of innovation in fishing that I saw uh, in in you. And uh, I, I do best by example. I remember we were on the bootlegger, we were on the North Drop, and we had decided we were going to try and catch. Uh, we were going to live bait one day. So we got a uh, we got a few tunas. I think they were I think they were uh, skipjacks. They might have been little black things. And we caught it if I remember right, I think we found a doll a board with believe it or not, and you very rarely see this on the Nord drop in 30 some odd years I've hardly ever seen it, but there were some dolphin on it. We caught a couple little dolphin yep. and tried couple. it really overcast today, rainy all morning yep. long, miserable. Well, so one thing that I remember seeing about that uh, that that stuck in my mind was uh, when we got the bite, you'd have the angler in the chair. Kota was sitting on the uh, on the on the covering board uh, with a big long loop of line in his hand, and the the line was just in his in his uh, forefinger like like an outrigger clip. And when you get the bite, his it would take it right out of his hand, and then Eddie would back the boat down with the reel in free spool. While they were free spooling the fish, feeding the fish, and, and I remember watching this like it happened yesterday, and he, and then he'd yell, "All right, go ahead, let's try him." He, the angler, would push the reel drag up into the strike position, and Eddie shot the boat ahead, and the fish stood up on his tail, and he was hooked right there. And I mean, like you could see what color that fish's eyes were. He was that close sure. to you. Learn that in Australia. When they lie bait in Australia, that's how they did it. It worked. worked. Now, you can't lie bait in St. Thomas at all. Just it just won't work. Really, the sharks are too bad. The sharks, yeah, yeah, yeah. You couldn't. You could have throw a bait over the side; it would even disappear out of sight. Shark (laughs) and have it. But we we did catch a few, and we actually tried kite fishing down there too. Really, trouble was getting the bait. We wanted the big blue runners. Yeah, yeah. We spent half a day getting bait, but we did catch. We did. We had a couple bites on the kite too, which were pretty cool. But just to try something different. And 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 I think that's the thing that so many guys uh, don't realize is that the. It was guys like Eddie that started these things and 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 took you know uh, the the level of innovation and these are the stories that we don't see anymore. You know, all these kids these days they go out there, they got the GPS, they 
you know, they got you didn't all the have information, that, but you, had to you use, didn't have that. Use that or innovation to try something different, <laughs> like sail fishing. In the tournaments, we use eighty pound leader. <laughs> now that's unheard of. Right. Well, we didn't have floral. There was no such thing as that. <clears throat> so, and then when you drop down to sixty, and oh no, man, we can't go any less than that now. <laughs> now you're using if you're using over forty, thirty yeah. or forty, it's too heavy. Yeah. Spinning rods are thirty, and yep. of course the fluoro is is much you know much improved the sport. But I mean, we didn't have that ability. So uh, you know, you and even though when you were uh, sometimes you're fishing fifties. You right. wouldn't even put a leader, just straight 50. Just straight 50, Trouble yeah. isn't wind up. It's it spit up on you, but it, it, you would do that, too. And and now, so tell us, what what are you doing these days now? After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. In, 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 we, in other words, where where have you been the last few well, years? Well, the last three years I've been in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. So we just, just got back. We unloaded the boat off. the Well, we were going to have, they're having all the issues in Panama, of course. No water in the canal. Right, we yeah. were going to have to come back on our own bottom. Um, <laughs> a good, uh, good friend of mine, Bobby Brown, uh, another Hawaiian captain, been around forever. He was going to make a trip back with me, hire two Two other local guys that were actually coming to work for me anyway. Plus, I was going to keep my two uh, Mexican mates that had been fishing with me over there. And we were just going to bring them both back at its own bottom. It just put them on a long trip. We'd probably still be, who knows, in, in Cologne waiting to come up. Trouble is getting up the Pacific, Atlantic side this time of year, the wind. Look, okay. look what yeah, we've been yeah, dealing sure. with weather here. Yeah. Can't get a break. But we got real fortunate our last day, a uh, couple last days of fishing, we got a call, one ship. <laughs> was gonna evidently bought the uh <laughs> extortion money to go through the canal <laughs> yeah. paid up and of course it cost us more and i said to my uh, boss i said what do you want to do you want to we'll keep go we'll do keep our plan or you want to put it on the ship yeah, so yeah. We, we loaded december 25th in la paz and then we unloaded when you took me out to yeah. get the boat on december yeah. 7th or uh, january 7th tell us a little bit about that uh that fishing out there Pretty incredible. I, I had the the uh, uh, opportunity to go. We discussed it for years. That's a big deal oh, yeah. to get over there with this boat. And you know, we got fortunate. We were in, invited to come over fish on the real wheels. Right. And uh, we went over there myself and my boss and Roy and Jim, and uh, it was just unbelievable. We we couldn't believe what we were seeing. And uh, on the plane ride home, Jim said, "Get it ready. We're going." So, and what were you seeing? Well, it's just the amount of fish. It's just like, how can there be this many fish in one area? And the first year we got there, every year, all three years were somewhat different. Now, the first two years were pretty much the same. This year, really, I'm not going to say off. It was just we weren't seeing what we saw the past two years. The big, huge, solid, uh, 
balls of sardines. Mm-hmm. And they were there this year, but in really tiny balls. Now we're putting big, big balls of tinker mackerels and stuff, and the fish were not in the bay. We, you know, we, we spent one night in Max Bay. Uh, we spent a handful of nights down below. There's an anchorage at the bottom of the bay called Tosca. It's, it's, a, it's an okay anchorage. It's not great, but it's better than nothing. But what I prefer to do, and uh, there's another boat that does it there too, we just don't go in. You got the sea keepers now. Right. We get done at the end of the day. You know, you're sitting in the right spot. You throw the sea anchor out, turn the sea keepers on, go down, have dinner. And usually the weather is uh, nice enough to do that because, you you know, in the middle of the night, sometimes the wind breezes up, but we would just stay out. Right. But this, the first year up there, uh, I think our best day, we had a few days over 100. We were still learning the tricks, but we averaged average day was 50 to 60 fish <laughs> the next year we went we'd approve we had eight days over our hundred and our best be day being 182 so you can imagine the quantity of fit it's incredible the amount of fish that are here now this year we saw something we never saw before with mahis and when i mean mahis i cannot there is no way i can describe how bad they were how bad they were they were you could not First of all, we couldn't fish any baits, which really hampers your your ability to fish correctly. You know, so you got to pull four teasers, and then just trying. You here comes the straight marlin coming in. You pitch to them, you know, pitch the ballyhoo to them, and dolphin beat the marlin. No kidding. And uh, the the amount of the, just. Dorados and sea lions were just worse than we'd ever seen them the two years before. You had a lot before. of fur bags up there, huh? Yeah, oh, millions of them. They're <laughs> all over. They'll, uh, they'll, uh, in the middle of the night, they're all behind a boat. And, and, uh, uh, barking at you. Barking at you. And, <laughs> and it, it's uh, This year was different from the past two years. It just wasn't. The fish were there, and they're still there. Uh, I think one boat yesterday had 25 or so, but it's it's it, we did not see the baits, and the fish were all down below us. Nothing, like I said, I spent one night at Mag's Bay. Right. For the years before, we were up there for dozens of nights. And, uh, again, we just started not going in. Just shut the motors up. Now, if it's breezy, you want to go in. But if it's nice, just throw the sea anchor out, turn your gyros on, you go down there, cook dinner, and, and you go to bed. Wow. Wow. Yeah. What an experience. Yeah. <laughs> You've been doing this for so long. And, I mean, you dedicated your life to, to Yeah, I did. I got caught up in it when I was so – Harry Tallum uh-huh. caught that first – it was all over then. And I think my father would prefer I had followed in his footsteps. He did. 33 years in the military. I think he was Hope Navy. And I think I almost went to Coast Guard really close. I went and took the exam. And I really sort of wanted to do that. And it was close. I literally, all I had, all I had to do was show up. I, last minute, I got cold feet. But <laughs> I just couldn't. I, you know. At all those, all the years that you put in, was there a specific dream team that you fish with? That you could, that you, I've been so fortunate to have so many guys, and everybody says fishing is definitely a team sport. Oh, yeah, because for a good captain to be good, you got to have a good crew. Absolutely, you can have the best captain in the world if you don't have good guys down below, it doesn't work. Uh, I've had, I've been very blessed with some really, really good guys. Of course, Skip being one of the best because of just the way he would, could 
could see things out. Him and he would discuss it with you. We talk about it and then do it. And then of course Alan was another Alan. one he liked. Oh, and then boy. of course I've had uh, I've had a really a bunch of good. Well, I've had, been really really fortunate. You in had, my whole you career. Had, you had Kunta and you had Fly. And I had Kunta and Skip. Now the, on the real tight. Yeah, I had that same team for the whole time. Jim was with. Wow. Was, I had Fly, Joe yeah. Fiegel, and uh, and Eric Leach. You know, IGFA, yeah. his dad's IGFA, and uh, or was, and that team they we were hung together the whole time, never. Wow. And it was like, but Jim fished. We fished two hundred plus days a year. I don't <sighs> mean traveling, fishing, fishing. We still had to get where he wanted to go: Panama, Costa Rica. He fell in love pretty much with St. Thomas. We did Venezuela when you could go, but he fell in love with St. Thomas. And I think if it was up to him, we tried one year to stay year round. We just couldn't fish. December, January, and February is official. Yeah. Uh, so we ended up turning. I think we went to a friend of his that told him about Dominican Republic. So we we tried that. It was good. More big blue marlins, but there was a pretty good quality of them. But uh, I, I think uh, that team, because we held together for such a long time, everybody everybody was good. Fly was so good at uh, we'd come in for somewhere, especially if it was in Panama, Costa Rica, Venezuela. He'd be out there with that native tongue of his, speaking the Spanish, <laughs> get everything done. He'd head off to the grocery store, go into town, do all the shopping. Joe was absolutely meticulously with the tackle he maintained all the tackles so that way if there's a failure not everybody's doing this point fingers at each other joe did everything and we never had a tackle failure and uh you know we tried some experimenting you know with different hook sets trying to you know improve on the hookup ratio and then of course eric when it came to fishing he was just the kid had gills you know uh, i'm so glad you brought up eric because our goal with the real guy podcast is for people to hear people like yourself, people like Eric. Now, Skip has a little bit more coverage than most, but that's the real guy. You know what I mean? That's the guy that's doing the, the, the nuts and bolts. And I take a little pride because we've had Skip on here, we've had Eric on the podcast, and now well, having you. Well, Skip's yeah. done things that no one, no one person has done. I mean, all the places he went with the madam, Australia and Cape Verde and Senegal and all the places they were. I don't know of anybody that I know in this industry. Of course, things have improved now. There's a lot of boats in, in Cape Verde. The guys put them on the ship, but Skip did it on his own bottom. On his own bottom. I mean, yeah, he yeah. went on. He went the hard way. He didn't just get to fly in a jet and land and go fish. And there wasn't GPS. And there wasn't yeah. any of that stuff. Skip had to do it yeah. all his own. Of course, all the rural records he's. Yeah. Uh, uh, God will probably never be, be be beaten, but Skip probably saw more than any of us combined will ever see. Well, so one thing that struck me about you is, you know, and, and I want to I want to point this out that there's so many there's so many thirty year old super captains that are out there now today, and the one thing that that I don't think that that I, personally I think it's been lost. Uh, on a lot of boats and a lot of programs is the captains going into the engine room. I have not seen a captain that spends more time in the engine room than you. Well, that's what I got lucky. When I started really getting to more fancy boats back then, yeah. we, we were in fishing clubs in Miami. So I had a, my first, you know, I had a Anna Capri, an old, my boss whaler, but my first boat was a 23 Sea Craft. That thing, I mean, I was a, 
anybody in the club, she either had a Cuda craft, she had a speed oh, yeah. craft or a sea craft. <laughs> and there were guys that had other stuff, but I ended up getting a speed craft later on. But we had that, uh, I had a 23 sea craft. Boy, we'd go to Bemini, and I mean, it was just like the queen of the fleet back then. Yeah. But, it, but you know, I thought, I guess, man, I don't own these things. I better figure out how to work on them. So I went to work after, after school, I'd go down and you know, the the boat center down there. It was called uh, what was it called back then? Well, it was called boat center, but it was something before before that. But uh, and I started rigging boats. They put me rigging boats, and then they sort of moved me up, and then moved me into being a mechanic, and then they moved me to the uh, North Miami store, and then I was a mechanic. So learning it, and then, of course, when I was with the uh, bootlegger, I went to the, the schools. Uh, went to the and I went to the advanced one. I did Onan. I did uh, you know. Detroit Diesel, and we even did Cummins because we had Cummins in the other one, and I know Skip did some of them too. Would you know? But it, there are places you can't just pick up the phone and call a mechanic, and and that's just you got to fix it yourself, and, or you're not going fishing. And that's the thing uh, that that so many of these young guys don't get anymore, and, and that is, is they don't want to take the time to learn these things. My kid's 19 years old, and he's just starting to work on boats now, and I told him, I said, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get a year or so uh, of experience, and then I want you to start going to these schools because I want you to come up the way that uh, the old school guys uh, did, and because that's where your real value is going to be, and I think that's well, one of the you reasons. You remember, as a charter boat, yeah, I, I was fortunate. I had someone else paying the majority of the real bad bills. Mm-hmm. But as a charter boat, especially someone like the you know the Marlon Darlin Ruin Rick was doing, you've got to be able to fix it yourself. You can't afford to pick up the phone. No. You know, even with the back then the VHFs and the radios, you could plug and play. You know, different. Uh, pull this out, put this in. Now you can't do that. It's all you just throw the stuff away and buy new stuff. But charter boats. If you had a charter the next morning and you had dropped an injector that day, you better have that injector and be able to put that new one in that night to not miss that charter the next morning. I heard a story about you doing that kind of thing. You and Skip tearing engines down the night before. Well, I knew. I knew. <laughs> we would be, I've actually done it some of the guys up, you know, other captains. We'd go over or I'd go over after we got in for fishing and what's the problem? Well, it's smoking, white smoke. Well, it's probably an injector if it's not blue we go in there and back then you put, put the screwdriver in there and shorted the injector out by jamming the plunger down <laughs> and uh, okay that's the one you got an m90 injector or an m70 whatever it is oh uh, yeah i do have one okay let's put it in put it in and he'd be fishing oh, a lot of guys on adoc had did that too because i got to know the detroit diesels and they were they were they were easy they and were jeff easy. there's is there any wonder why the best have come up from Docks like a doc, yeah. there it is right there. Yeah, when when they when they uh, when they took a doc down uh, the year before last, one of the things that we were trying to emphasize and trying to get the world to realize is that a doc was like sport fish university for Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, like as of uh, maybe Bud Marys or uh, Chesapeake Dock or uh, you know Cranon Park. You know, look at all the great uh, come off Cranon Park. And a good fisherman, you know, out of Cuba's cane. And uh, unfortunately, now property is more valuable than, you know, uh, fishing. 
yeah. when it comes to this. And, of course, be Hillmar right in the middle of downtown Fort Lauderdale. That wasn't going to happen. Right. This property is too valuable. Yeah, yeah, big time, well, including the property we're sitting Well, on look, now. even it's, it's really fortunate that some of the better docks, like Sailfish Marina and some of the four cheap people have bought them that want to keep everything fishing. They want to keep the Rather heritage. than just turn it into a, a money-making marina. They've kept the charter docks and kept it because of the owners. You know, there's not all, it's not all about making money. Right. Keeping the marina like it was. Right. Versus a lot of these marinas just, hey, why should we give a charter boat, you know, paying five or six or eight hundred or a thousand dollars a month when we can get a guy in there that'll pay us six or eight thousand right. so it's all money all money uh, mm-hmm. they have the fishing part of it now is is gone you know by the way and of course charter fishing these days now with the prices of fuel oh. when i first started doing it was 16 cents a gallon for diesel fuel yeah i mean i, I remember when it got to a, a dollar we were complaining it's a, a thousand, dollar a gallon it's a thousand dollars for a half day trip in the keys now. If I remember right, what was it when I first got to eat? I'm thinking 150 a day, half a day, half a day, 300 for all the two. I can't remember, but I remember, I remember around 200, two, 200 for half a day, and then it, uh, it, uh, uh, it, um, you know, clearly going up from there. But yeah. I mean, even a Cabo would pay six bucks a gallon. Devaluation didn't help because right now no. when we got there, it's 22 pesos to the dollar. Now it's 15.5. Yeah. So uh, it's uh, and there's plenty of fuel. It's not the fuel shortage. It's just there's a devaluation. But really, same way here, the price of fuel, your tackle, your line, oh, yeah. and then you got to pay your crew more. Yeah. And uh, I'm paying a hundred bucks a week to use the boat ramp. Is that what they're getting now? <laughs> Four Chiefs hasn't gone that way in Stewart yet, but I know here in, across from the boat yard here they charge. I think you go in and put your, I don't know, five ten bucks to launch your boat. I'll think about it. Uh, so I put in at Hollywood last night. Mm-hmm. It's twenty bucks. You Martin County ain't got there yet, but I don't see any other way that's going to happen. They've got to do something. Now, if you go down to Palm Beach County, they wanted you originally to buy a sticker. Now they got the machine. Right. So, but you know, I used to buy. I didn't put in much down there. But Martin County, so far, they are all uh, on the you know no charge yet. But I, I would suspect sooner or later, it's going to happen. Well, I don't want to end this podcast by bitching about how expensive everything. No, is. no, no. We're just so, we're just but, saying where things have gone. Oh yeah, touching on what he said. Basically, it's putting the charter boat guys out of business. Oh, oh yeah, and but let me ask you. Let me let me just switch gears just a little bit. What do you see for the future of sport fishing in in general? Where do what are the hot new markets? What are the hot new destinations? Do you, do you see a change well, in destination wise? Everybody's you know we got of course Cape Verde and of course you can put on a ship and you know it's expensive but you know put the boat on a ship send it over then you got to be able to get there. It's mm-hmm. difficult unless you've got the ability to fly direct right from here to Cape Verde. Some people can. And uh, I think we're going to hold tight. I know St. Thomas has dropped off a little bit. A lot of places have. but uh, uh, And they come and go. We have hot spurts. Right. One year it could be you know, uh, really good. And I think there's a lot of other places that have not been found. Well, that's kind of where and I was it's, going. It's, but you've got to get people yeah. that are willing. That's where Skip found out with the Madam and Hooker. He had the ability to do that. Yeah. And, you know, here you're in St. Thomas. 
Do you really want to go down and try Grenada or Barbados fishing when you know you're catching three or four nice bites a day or Bermuda, where you might be, to go place that's unknown? And number, here's another problem. One boat doesn't do it. We can't, if you want to, there's a, when we first started fishing in Mag Bay, we were one of the first boats up there. That's a huge area. You're talking yeah. three areas over probably 60 miles that you're trying to cover, maybe more. One boat, uh, we could miss them by 10 miles. Right. With uh, the, other boats, they'll know. But here, people aren't, don't want to leave that great area to go experiment. There, there's probably, you look at the Caribbean, there's, there's got to be more blue marlin spots like St. Thomas. That is not the sure. only blue. They, they don't all come. I Look at the Dominican Republic. I don't yeah. believe Cap-tana. when they start putting all the fads there, you know, blue marlin starts showing up. There's, there's spots. That, and now we have the ability to do that with these bigger boats with more fuel, the technology, but you've just got to. Bite the bullet and go try it. Right. 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 Talking about boats, let's talk about your relationship with Roy over here at Merritt's. Now, well, we, we started with a 43, and then we got a 54. That didn't end well. It ended up in a storm. Oh, God, I remember But believe that. it or not, the boat is still with us. That boat has been... Uh, the guy down there in Miami, that glass tech, fixed that whole boat up. And yeah, I don't know how. There was a hole in the bottom that's big enough to walk through. He fixed that boat up. It's still running around today. And I've had, uh, we, I built a 65-footer. I built an 80-footer. I built a 72-footer. And those were from scratch. And then uh, uh, I had a 58. And a, uh, another 65 on top of the one I built, the second which was Lambert had. And uh, we've had a lot of merits, and I've run probably almost everything he's built, wow. 37, which he had, a 46, and, of course, the 54s, and the, or 50, uh, 58s. But. So, so walk me through how this would work. All right, so you go out and do the fishing. You come back. You speak with Merritt, Roy, I guess, and you would, what, give suggestions? You'd have a, a, ch- a, a list of things that you needed to accomplish? How- well, he's from a fishing family too, especially his father. You know, Alan was what it probably involved with a group of the best tuna fishermen there were at the time. Of course, the tunas were there to catch, but uh, you know, he was with the Steruses and, and the amount of people he was. He's from a fishing family, and of course, his uh, his uh, his grandfather. Uh, I mean, they fished. His dad fished for a living in, in Fort Lauderdale when the charter boat dock was up the river. Yep, and. Uh, he was he was he was born you know that's how he made his money roy told me growing up he was so sick of a piece of kingfish that's all his dad would they didn't have money to buy food so they would just you know get kingfish and whatever they could get what about dorado they wouldn't eat them they wouldn't eat kingfish but actually probably dorado was worth too much money to sell but uh uh he so he you know he'll oh you know what we need the scuppers are this big we really need to make them this big well let's talk about this and next thing you know they're this big yeah and oh they're only that big and the other no now they're getting bigger and the transom doors instead of just a door that opens up now the whole door so you got a whole what brought that on is diving he got into diving really real real bit we all were myself roy and uh we were i mean every other weekend we'd be going over to bemini or diving out here he was big time into diving in the 80s the 90s and he actually liked this door so much he took his family boat the caliban which was a marine management and put that door in it because we'd go over with that boat to bemini and go diving next thing you know every boat he builds has that same door and now i look at all the manufacturers they're all doing it 
It's that Hatteras actually probably was one of the first because remember they would flip up yep. and then out. So yep. you had a direct entrance. So like everybody else, everybody had it where you're trying to pull it through a door. Hatteras had it. You flipped it open and you had a nice yep. exit. And Roy started doing that. Now every door is like the whole door is just opens up. And I think everybody's going, I don't think. If they're having, I don't know if anybody even builds a tuna doors the old-fashioned way. Not that I know. I haven't seen one in a while. You'd have but to custom order he, uh, you, know, his, you know, his dad started fishing out here some of the way, things they would try. Of course, today we would say, boy, that's primitive as heck. But it was very modern, you know, fishing with the the line and the and the baits they use and the outriggers. Mm-hmm. That was the thing. They didn't, nobody hardly knew what an outrigger was. Right. So. But his family's from fishing, so he's picked up on some of these ideas, and and uh, so. But he's worked with numerous good captains that have built boats with him, that have brought these ideas. And at first, uh, I'm not too sure I like this, but then he does it. And, hey, you know what? A pretty good idea. Yeah, yeah. Now, if somebody dropped a big bag of cash in my lap, and I went to Roy and I said, "Hey, Roy, would you buy? Would you build a 37?" Would he do it? He would probably do it, but he's he's done that for other people. Yeah. But he's going to issue one warning. You're probably going to have a 37-foot boat that's going to cost $5 million. $5 million. Dollars. <laughs> you can't. It's the la- right. it's so labor-intensive. Labor so I asked him, I said, Roy, why don't you build a 43? It was the hottest thing out there when it come to you know local fishing. It costs too much to build. You know, they've built these game fishers down here in uh, Costa Rica and stuff where they can do it. Right. But here, money-wise, the time and labor... And then if you're even going to build a mold, and, and a mold, it just takes so much time and labor to do it. You can build these big boats and do it right and have... Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. It's our wise you can get your better bang for your buck. Right. He would probably do it, but you wouldn't want to know mm-hmm. what it cost. <laughs> right. Well, even though you've got a lot of good builders here in South Florida. Really, of course, we got the Carolina guys, but you know you got you know Mark Willis and you got John Vance and yep. you got these guys are building really the still custom boats and they do a really good job and those guys would build you a smaller i think you'd be better off going with them with the smaller boat and he would do what he did mark built that boat here what's it called it's a i think it's a 37 like an open boat it runs around lighthouse point here i remember the name uno moss no, maybe no that's it's uh, uh it's like a 32 I, i've seen it i've seen it's it gray looking it's a can't think of yeah, yeah. Uh, beautiful boat yeah but again it's the time it's so labor intensive our sport has gotten it's always been expensive always from day one 
But now it's not only expensive, it's mega expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, with the price of the boat at eight, ten, twelve million dollars, you know, then to maintain it, buying it's cheap. I mean, I know what we do. I've got, you know, the, the three crew and then, you know, the insurance, fuel. So years ago when you would get the a little bit better than average person be able to afford a boat like we have today, they, they can't afford it. Although these, you know, these, some of these, even these, you know, the CVs contenders and all oh, these, uh, sea hunters, whatever. Yeah, even you know, the 39, they're all going to be a million plus. Right. And it's, uh, I don't know. The only thing you do is, you get, if you get a good job with a good owner, you've got you, you, you to do everything you possibly can to try to help save a couple bucks. It doesn't matter. They could be, Elon Musk, have all the money in the world. You need to, you know, it needs, you know, you want to try to do it as economically as you can, but yet don't let the boat suffer. Like our right. boat is maintained with an open checkbook. Yeah. But, like there's something I wanted to put on right now is that uh, chlorinator, but it's twenty grand, and I've wanted to do it before we went to Cabo. But we've uh, we're we spent so much. That's, I don't have to have that because I have a system set up to flush it the old-fashioned way. But I've taken other things in priority that need to be done and sort of let that you know that's not something that's going to keep the boat from going fishing. Other stuff is so. Right. The problem is the sports just getting really expensive, and it's not that in every sport. You know, look at NASCAR, look at him. All the it's just getting more and more expensive for people to stay in it. But the uh, the the younger guys you just have to you know then you know really to maintain boats that's the big ticket, where you can keep the bills under under uh, under uh, in in hand. Yeah. Don't let things get out of here. I see so many. That's, I see so many boat owners just getting taken to the cleaners. For one year, they're out. Like they're that. out. The, yeah. the, the guy looks at it. Look, I used this boat twenty days last year, and it cost me two million bucks. This ain't worth it. Not yeah. including what he bought, paid to buy it. You know, I spent all this money for crew, and then the, you know he goes, "This just isn't. I'm not enjoying it." Or then when we do catch, the thing breaks down because something was not taken care of, something like that, and and then he gets. His first trip for the year to wherever we're going to Chub Key, and then they spend the time over there broken down. Why was you know, uh, this just isn't worth it? So, the important thing is to try to keep the people that are really interested in the sport. And unfortunately, the a lot of you know, like Jim Sr., all that man wanted to do was fish. Uh, Don Tyson, these people, oh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, they all they want to do is fish, and we're losing a lot of the good people in the sport so we've got to re-energize the sport with people and we do have some new people come in that, that that's what they want to do is fish but you've got to keep them you, you don't want to uh discourage them right don't want to right. discourage them don't want to burn them yeah no yeah. not everybody's got to be an mtu or detroit diesel mechanic and a captain i mean but you know they uh you uh, but it helps it helps <laughs> or the basic knowledge yeah Yep. Basic knowledge. Yep. The fuel goes in there, it comes out there, the air goes in there, the exhaust comes out. I mean, I've talked to some people, they get a new brand new boat, and I said, oh, what kind of generators you got? I don't know. This is no what kind of propellers you got? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not really sure. I think we have Northern Lights where they really had own ads. I'm like, Jesus Christmas. <laughs> just built the boat. He says, well, I'm not, my job is just to run it. We have people to maintain it. Okay. All right. Yeah. Outsourcing. You know, if that's the way it is, if you're fortunate to have a job like that, but if you don't want to, you know, you think you'd want to know your boat. Right. Uh, you would think. You would yeah. think. Eddie, 
Thank you so sure, much. No problem, guys. Thank you. Enjoy, we really, really it. appreciate yeah. you coming out here and you know letting us come up here and, and rather uh, do this. And uh, I think this is going to be a good one. Well, Eddie, it's just it's it's Wait. getting harder and harder to find people that can go past the fish story. So by having guys like you, it's not a fish story. It's a life. It's a way of living, and. That's what we call a real guy. Mm-hmm. Well, all the guys that I've been with, if that they're in it. You know, Eric, his father, he grew up fishing from probably the day he came out of the womb. He's had a fishing rod in his hand. And, you know, there's another one. You know, he lives for fishing. You know, I know he, he's got a you know, couple kids now, so he's trying to manage being a father and a fisherman. Which yep. even told him, I've never had that problem. So I didn't have any kids. It was I just had Labrador retrievers. So that, <laughs> anyway, but the it, it's you know it's tough. To, there's another problem. It's tough. When I first got to Cabo, and I'm drag into this thing, but you know my guys, it was tough. They had wives and family. It was tough for them being away, and that's a long ride to get home from Cabo. Mm-hmm. I come home with my boss, and no big deal. But what it's what it's doing it the old-fashioned way like all of the regular people have to do it it's a difficult deal but it's they're like people like eric they've been brought up fishing so now you're trying to manage being a father and a fisherman he's doing a damn good job of it but it's difficult Uh, one of the uh one of the things that take a lot of a lot of pride in is taking the kids fishing he's doing a really good job of that i took eric and his kid tarpon fishing up in the river and to watch his kid's eyes get big and you should see his brain working and it's like okay maybe there is the new real guy out there and it's going to be kids like eric's kid yeah yeah and uh, anything i can do to keep the heritage alive and keep people fishing i will do it's you know it's it's like everything else it's uh it's an unbelievable sport, and and we have to learn the management. You know, for example, you know, quick years ago, remember the Lauderdale Bell Fish Tournament? Sure. That fish was skipped that day, and uh, he was running about fifty-four Bertram. It was a back then. It was a kill tournament. That particular day was unbelievable. It was one of these days that they come. I mean, and we've had. It's always like one or two days a year they really <laughs> yeah. come. Like the day with the real time, we caught 58 sailfish sitting off Boynton. I think we had 35, 80 bites sitting off Boynton Beach, 58. And, and, but that one particular day, next day we went out, it went to 20. Next day they were gone. Yep. But that day they came. And remember, we all came in, and there they are, 160 on Pollock on the dock. Oh, come on. So then, <laughs> you know, we've learned to manage our sport, too. I mean, Blue Marlin-wise, I remember growing up, man, if you caught one 80 pounds or 800 pounds, he was going to come in. He was coming to the He dock. was coming in to go on that racket. Yeah. Now we've learned. You know, they, they even though they've put all these laws and regulations with size, I think even without that, people would have learned. The, the BBCs, yeah. uh, when they were in effect, Jim Lambert was really one to push that into a full-release tournament. We're just killing too much. And you got to remember, you kill a Blue Marlin, everybody wants the big one. You killed the you. You don't need to kill them at all, but you're killing the wrong ones. You're killing the females. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, we killed a fish in Bermuda. Had it. They cut that thing open and had enough uh, eggs in it to, you know, forty. I don't know what they told us biologists that was there. Of course, they were doing research, so that's a good thing. But, you know, you, you got to remember, you kill these big blue marty, you kill the wrong ones. Yeah. Right. Right. We didn't kill any of them, but you're really killing the wrong ones. We killed that big female. But anyway, but and maintaining our sport, you know, you got to look conservation. Which is really big, and then of course, keeping the owner, you know, uh, 
in, you know, uh, interested in the sport. Right. Yeah. Don't want to run out of the business because even though they might have all the money they could possibly eat, but they get to the point where, oh, shit. Man, I'm doing, <laughs> I'm spending all this money and I'm having a miserable time. You get on the boat, the cruise, everybody's fighting or, you know, just that or, or it's like, yeah, it's, uh, I yeah could, the clock's ticking on that one. I could do one. better staying in the office and listen to all my employees complain at me. <laughs> but, he, he, you know, you want to keep your boss interested in yep. the sport. Yep. That's what happened with my father. You know, he just he got tired of, of, of spending the money, and he just realized that it was easier to, you know, fly to Venezuela or go down to St. Thomas and, you know, fish with somebody well, else. He, he rather did it than, all. I remember yeah. him at all the tournaments, yep. all the shootouts, all the Oh, he fished everything, and, yeah. You know, and then he just got to the point. You know what? He got burned out. I'll just go charter. Yep. You know. Yep. Let's go get out. I'll go to wherever I want to go. I'll just go and have a good time. Right. Anyway. Anyway, hey, thanks so much. Thank sure, you. Sure, you're welcome, guys. This Phenomenal. is going to be a good one. Phenomenal. Right. Run, no that Run that dog. Run that dog. So there you have it. A fishing legend. And people throw around the word legend way too much. There's only a few guys like Eddie in this world, and we were so glad to have him right here on The Real Guy Podcast. <laughs>